We had Psalm 143 for the scripture reading, and there were some statements in there I thought were appropriate just to, to reread, um, to set our minds right for our gathering this morning. We hear David's words where he says to God, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And then he says, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Well, that's going to be fulfilled here and now. You're going to hear in the morning of God's steadfast love. And you're going to hear of the way you should go. And then he says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So every Sunday when we gather together, we open up the word of God and proclaim it and preach it. It is us hearing from God so that we might know his will and that by the spirit he might lead us on level ground. So that being said, why don't you all turn to John's gospel? We were there last week. We're going to be here in our passage once again this morning. We're going to be in chapter 3. For those of you who weren't here last Sunday, hopefully you had a chance to listen to the sermon online. That's why we put them up, is so you don't fall behind in your instruction in the Word. So that is available for you. And also, if you're thinking about it, uh, just outreach, evangelism, gospel messages available online, uh, some more than others could be probably qualified or categorized as more evangelistic And certainly it could be something that you could send a link to friends or relatives or or anyone that you think would benefit from hearing that, who needs to hear the gospel. It's the proclamation of God's word. So a resource that we do have available that we can be thinking, again, outwardly, evangelistically, being on mission for Christ. So as I said, John's gospel, chapter 3. We're going to continue looking at this small section that runs from verse 16 through verse 21. Last week we covered verses 16 through 18, and this morning we're going to cover the next three, 19 through 21. And as a reminder, this section is not a continuation of Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, but is rather the Apostle John giving a word of explanation and reflection to his readers in light of what Jesus said to Nicodemus, which is why it'd be helpful if you at least heard the sermon from last time. So we established that, but I wanted to remind you, uh, in case you hadn't heard that, so some of you might have a red-letter Bible, so the text we're looking at is red, but I would say pretend it's black, and that there are no quotes around verses 16 through 21. And your ESV translation does make a note of that, that some interpreters end the quotation at verse 15, Jesus speaking from verses 10 to 15 and ending it there. So you have that footnote in your Bibles, and that's where we're going. Uh, we'll be 16 through 21, 19 through 21 this morning. And this is John, the Apostle John's uh, word of explanation and reflection in light of what Jesus said to Nicodemus in that previous section. And by the way, just regarding that, the end of that quote and that John is giving a comment and a word of explanation, if you continue reading, you will see that there is another word of explanation and reflection given by the Apostle John to his readers, very much like this one, in verses 31 through 36. 
in that time, it is in light of what John the Baptist says in verses 27 to 30. And as you have there a quote from John the Baptist, uh, followed by the Apostle John's commentary, so you have here a quote from Jesus followed by the Apostle John's commentary. So it shows you it's, it's something that he does again later in this text, and we'll get to that passage. So here's a summary of what we, summary of what we learned up to this point, and again, including pretty much all of chapter 3. God the Father, in his gracious love for the people he had chosen for himself and appointed to eternal life, gave his Son to secure their salvation by making atonement for their sins through the voluntary sacrifice of himself on a cross. Those who believe in the Son, as a result of being born of the Spirit, are no longer condemned and will not perish. Because through saving faith, faith that has been graciously given to them by the Father... They are justified and will be glorified, and they will therefore see and enter the kingdom of God. That's the teaching that we've received from Jesus, from the word so far in John's gospel. However, as the Apostle John said in verse 18, those who do not believe are condemned already, and unless they repent, the wrath of God remains upon them and they will perish because they refuse to believe in the name of the only son of God who alone can give them eternal life. In verses 19 through 21, John then gives further explanation of what he said specifically in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now let's read. He goes on, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God so what we have here is John's explanation in verses 19 and 20 as to why people do not believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then in verse 21, why anyone does. First, let's remember the words of Jesus in the previous section. He said to Nicodemus that unless one is born from above, that is, born of the Spirit, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. In the flesh, or in one's natural sinful state, One's heart is hardened against God. One is inclined towards rebellion against God. And one's greatest desire is always to serve self rather than to submit to God. And as the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, those who live according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh, not on the things of the spirit. And to set the mind on the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Do you hear that? The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is why Jesus said that unless you are born from above, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. As God, by his own sovereign will, causes the wind to blow around you, so he must also breathe spiritual life into you so that you would believe in his Son and have eternal life. Apart from God's gracious intervention, you will not genuinely believe in the Son of God. Unless he intervenes, you will not genuinely believe in the Son of God, savingly believe in the Son of God. Instead, you remain in your unbelief and you will perish unless God gives you spiritual life that produces genuine repentance and genuine saving faith. It's a gift of God. Jesus pointed out the fact that Nicodemus, along with the other religious leaders, were not believing. And as a result, they were not receiving his and John the Baptist's testimony. They weren't receiving his testimony because they weren't believing. And the reason they were not believing is why? Because they had not been born from above. This is consistent with what John had said in his prologue, right at the beginning, those first, that opening to his gospel narrative, the first 18 verses, right in the middle of that. What John had said was that it was those who were born of God who believed in the name of the Son of God and received him. Now, in light of all that, in light of what John has told us regarding the absolute necessity of God's gracious initiative in causing us to be born from above, apart from which we would remain in unbelief, John offers a further explanation as to why people do not believe. Verse 19, he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Well, what is the light? What is the light? It is the life-giving truth of God's word that is manifested in and through the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Back in the prologue, John said that Jesus is the true light. He is the true light. He is the eternal word of God manifested in the flesh, who has eternal life in himself. We who are born in sin and dwell in the realm of spiritual darkness and death, that is this fallen world, this realm of darkness, we are in need of the kind of life that the Son has in himself. And that life comes by way of the light 
that he gives, which is his revelation of the truth and knowledge of God. What is the darkness then? Well, it's the opposite of light. It's the opposite of the light. It is the opposite of the life-giving truth of God's word that shines in and through Jesus Christ. The darkness, therefore, is untruth. It is falsehood manifested in willful ignorance, error, and or superstition of those who do not believe in the Son of God. That's what the darkness is. This darkness is fueled by the evil one, Satan, the spiritual leader of the great rebellion against God, the one who continues to deceive the whole world and exert his powerful influence among mankind. We read in Scripture that his end will come, for the Lord has promised it will come. But until then, he is actively seeking to work his destructive influence in this world and to lead people astray so that they remain in darkness. That is his activity. And it's evident as we look at the world. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. As the Apostle John said in his first epistle, the whole unbelieving world, the whole world, that is the unbelieving world, lies in the power of the evil one. The scriptures refer to Satan as the ruler of this world and the prince of the power of the air who shapes and directs his values or the values and standards of fallen humanity. Prince of the power of the air who shapes and directs the values and standards of fallen humanity. The spirit of the age. However, although fallen people live under the tyrannical rule of Satan and are powerless against him, they are not innocent victims. They are not held captive by him in spiritual darkness against their wills. Rather, they are passionate participants in his rebellion against God. They are satisfied subjects in Satan's lawless realm. How can we make such a judgment? How can we say that? Well, John says in verse 19 that the light has come into the world that is the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, by which fallen people can be delivered from the domain of darkness and enter everlasting life. Salvation has come. And yet, even in the very presence of the Son of God, at that time in history that we're looking back on, even in his very presence, he who himself is the true light, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? John says, because their works were evil. 
They didn't love the darkness reluctantly. Rather, they loved it wholeheartedly. It suited them. It served them well. This is true of all mankind. I say they, but it applies to all mankind. All people are born in sin. All are sinners by nature. And evil works flow out of that nature. Those who are evil and thus who do evil are most content and comfortable in moral and spiritual darkness. Why? Because in moral and spiritual darkness, they can soothe their guilty conscience. They can justify their evil deeds. They can lie to themselves regarding God's absolute standards of righteousness and deceive themselves into thinking that they are good people. And they can ignore the certainty of God's coming judgment or at least pretend that they will be able to stand in that judgment and not be cast into the eternal fires of hell. All of that activity, all of, all of that thinking is wrong thinking. It's living in darkness, in falsehood, lies, deception, superstition, empty belief. No substance, no truth. One commentator wrote the following. And there's a lengthier quote, but I thought this was just so spot on with how he hits this passage. He says, It is the unspeakable folly of the most of men that they loved darkness rather than light, rather than this light. The Jews loved the dark shadows of their law, and the instructions of their blind guides, remember, tradition of the elders, right, superimposed even over the word of God to render it void. They love the instructions of their blind guides rather than the doctrine of Christ. The Gentiles loved their superstitious services of an unknown God, whom they ignorantly worshipped rather than the reasonable service which the gospel enjoins. Sinners that were wedded to their lusts loved their ignorance and mistakes, which supported them in their sins, rather than the truths of Christ, which would have parted them from their sins. Wretched man is in love with his sickness, in love with his slavery, and will not be made free will not be made whole. Willful ignorance is so far from excusing sin that it will be found at the great day to aggravate the condemnation. This is the condemnation. This is what ruins souls, that they shut their eyes against the light. We must account in the judgment not only for the knowledge we had, and used not, but for the knowledge we might have had and would not. Not only must we account for the knowledge we sinned against, but we must also account for the knowledge we sinned away. End quote. People are not in moral and spiritual darkness because there is no light. It's not by default. 
For John says that the light has come. People do not remain in moral and spiritual darkness because the saving light is not shining, but because they have no desire to come to that light. To hear these key words, the will, desire, where is that centered in? It's in the heart. Not innocent victims, willful participants. No desire to come to that light. It's shining, but no desire to come to it. Refuse to come to that light. By nature, they hate the light. Because it disrupts their delusion and discloses their depravity. It's uncomfortable. It's comfortable to remain in your delusion. In the lies you tell yourself, in your deception. It's comfortable to ignore the depths of your own wickedness and to not have a light shine on that. John explains further in verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. The reason for people's unbelief towards Jesus and the gospel message is ultimately moral, not intellectual. I mean, they've got to hear it, right? So we use words, and there is understanding that we try to help people understand the message. But once it's preached, once it's shared, the holdup for someone is not an intellectual issue. Well, I just need a little more information. Do you have any some like more archaeological evidence to kind of back up those claims? It's not that. It's not, I need more evidence. The issue's moral. People don't mistakenly miss the light, but they deliberately avoid it. When they are confronted with the truth of God's word, they continually suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. They continually reject it by either reviling it or ignoring it. There's two responses, right? But both are rejection. They either shake their fist at, at it or just ignore it altogether. They want to be called good, not evil. Don't people want to be called good? People don't like being called evil. They want to be affirmed, not condemned. They want to be puffed up, not brought low. They want to be exalted, not humbled. But the reality is that people are indeed evil and are guilty before God because of their sins. That's reality. That is truth. And unless they are humbled to the point of confessing their sins before God, repenting and trusting in Jesus, they will perish. That's the truth. One commentator wrote, The light of the gospel is sent into the world to reprove the evil deeds of sinners, to make them manifest, to show people their transgressions, to show that to be sin, to show that to be sin which was not thought to be so, 
and to show them the evil of their transgressions, so that sin might appear exceedingly sinful. The gospel has its convictions to make way for its consolations. You might have heard, what does gospel mean? That word basically means good news. It's like, where's the good news in that? But again, to really receive or hear the good news, understand the good news, you have to hear what? The bad news first. And we say it that way just because the message starts out by saying, God is holy and you are wicked. You are evil. You are a sinner against God and you are deserving only of his wrath. And if you die, you will remain separated from him and you'll be cast into hell justly. But God has made a way of salvation for sinners like you and me, right? But we've got to hear the bad news first. Another commentator wrote, to come to the light means to have one's darkness shown for what it is and to have it rebuked for what it is. All people in their natural sinful state detest this kind of exposure. They spurn the light of divine truth because it does not let them hide or ignore their shameful thoughts and deeds. They want to live in denial and distract themselves from the deadly reality that they are sinners in the hands of a holy God whose righteous anger burns against them and will consume them on the inevitable day of his judgment against them for their sins. Certainly, people want to live in denial of that truth and distract themselves from that dreadful reality. However, avoiding the light of God's word that is manifested in and through the person of Jesus Christ does not mean that you are hidden. For as scripture says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You cannot escape the judgment of God. You cannot hide your sin from God. You cannot claim ignorance regarding sin and its penalty before God. You cannot bribe God with whatever so-called good deeds you have done. You cannot manipulate God with empty claims of love and devotion. You cannot blot out all your iniquities. You cannot do that. They will always be before you, and no matter how hard you try, the stain of your guilt will remain. You cannot cleanse yourself from your sin. What then is there left for you to do? That sounds pretty hopeless. What then is there left for anyone to do? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only thing left to do is to repent, turn in faith, to the one who can cleanse you from sin. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of Man who has given his life as a ransom for many. 
the servant of the Lord who satisfied the wrath of God towards his sinful people through the sacrifice of himself. The Son of God, through whom sinners are reconciled to God and are justified by his grace through their faith apart from their works. John says in verse 21, But whoever does what is true, literally the one who does the truth, comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The one who does the truth is the one who has been born from above and is believing in Christ, Jesus, the Son of God. This one believes the truth that God has revealed through his Son and submits to that truth in faith. And therefore is described as one who is doing the truth. This is the one who comes to the lights and keeps coming. Sometimes we don't see it, but the coming here or the refusal to come, it's a present tense. It's an ongoing activity. So it's not just a past event that is spoken here, but comes and keeps coming to the lights. This one who does the truth, is no longer one who habitually refuses to come to the light and walks in darkness and is characterized by unrighteous deeds and spiritually worthless priorities and pursuits. This one is now habitually acting in accordance with the truth of God's word and submitting to Christ and letting the light of Christ shine on him. The light exposes his sin, and he welcomes it. The light shows him the way of the Lord, and he walks in it. As one commentator puts it, this man has no reason whatever to fear this divine light of truth when it shows up the inward realities of his heart and his life. The idea is not that this light will find nothing to convict him. It will show up sins, weaknesses of faith, and faults enough. But this man wants to be rid of these and gladly submits to the healing power of the light. So what causes a sinner to humble himself before God? confesses sin and guilt before God and repent and believe in the Son of God, trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of his sins and submitting to him as Lord over all things through faith and obedience. What causes that? What causes a sinner to go from doing evil to doing the truth? What causes a sinner to go from loving the darkness and hating the lights to leaving the darkness behind and coming to the light. It's nothing in him. Nothing in him. For in his natural fallen state, he is spiritually dead, darkened in his understanding, and morally bankrupt. There's no spark of goodness or spiritual sensitivity 
extra spiritual sensitivity in someone or, or just a little extra intellectual capacity to really understand these things and embrace them. There's nothing in man that causes this change. Scripture is clear about that. Depravity. Spiritually dead, darkened in the understanding, morally bankrupt, corrupt to the core. The works that indicate such a radical transformation within the sinner, John says, have been carried out in God. These works of radical transformation are works that have been carried out in God, not apart from God. In other words, the one who does what is true and comes to the light, believing in the Son of God, does so because God has graciously intervened and caused him to be born from above. You must be born from above. And with regard to this radical change, I happened to have uh, recently read a book with my wife that is called the, the Gospel Call and True Conversion by Paul Washer. Very good book. Excellent book. I highly recommend everybody read it. Again, though he has some different maybe positions of theology and things like that, uh, on the God, it's, a, it's an exceptional book on clarifying the true uh, gospel call and the nature of true conversion. And this is actually the second book in a three-part series, Recovering the Gospel. The first one is a presentation of the gospel itself. Then this one is on the gospel call and true conversion. And the third one is basically on uh, assurance and the new life of the believer, something along those lines. But I wanted to at least, I, I figured now would be a good time to share this, this excellent book that I read because, hey, if you don't read it, at least you're going to have this read to you now. I'm going to read an excerpt that is quite relevant to this topic of genuine transformation in the center caused by God. Because, again, in John's gospel, we're, we're presented with some hard truths, some very straightforward truths that challenge us. The, the reality of people believing in the name of Christ, and yet that belief being untrustworthy belief, shallow, superficial belief. But we read in the gospel, it says, but it says they believed in his name. Yeah. And then it says that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knows what's in man. So God knows and sees perfectly we have a hard time with that. But what we want to make sure is that we don't, we don't diminish and water down the gospel to the point of, of thinking that it's just, just believe these four points that I presented to you, and poof, that means you have eternal life. Now, the one who, who believes savingly must be born from above. And if they're not born from above, whatever kind of fleshly exertion of faith that they're trying to do uh, is not say it, it is... It is there's no substance to it. It doesn't save them because it's not a, a genuine saving faith that will endure and persevere. So let me read this excerpt. This is on the, the chapter called A New Heart. A New Heart. Story time. Here's our, here's our spot. Okay. We had hearts of stone and were dead in our sins. 
We walked according to the course of this fallen world, even according to the will of the arch enemy of God. We were driven by the lusts of our fallen natures, indulging the desires of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath. Seems to describe darkness pretty well. Yet, when all hope of any form of recuperation was lost, God intervened and raised us up in Christ to walk in newness of life. He took out our heart of unresponsive stone and replaced it with a heart of living flesh. He changed our natures and thus our affections and will. He recreated us in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness, and thus our, our palates changed. And we began to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As a result, we now hate the sin we once loved and love the righteousness we once hated. We are now ashamed of the rebellion of which we once boasted and glory in the God of whom we were once ashamed. Though we are not immune to fleshly desires and the temptations of the filth we left behind, we now know the wrongness of them. If we are deceived and drawn to them again, we smell their foulness and taste their rot. Thus, we cannot tolerate them for long. Our very nature requires that we turn from them in disgust and repent in shame. We are new creatures with new affections that drive us back to God. In conclusion, these truths leave us with some personal questions in two different categories. And we'll just look at the first. First, are we those who have merely made some decision to accept Christ, or are we new creatures? Are we those who have simply joined ourselves to some expression or institution of Christianity, or have our hearts been changed? Is there any evidence to prove our boast of salvation? Have our affections been transformed? Have we become more responsive to the person and will of God? We would do well to remember the twin warnings the Apostle Paul once gave. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And the second one, for if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. End quote. Do you hear that? 
the distinction, and, and this has been clear in John's gospel, and we're only in chapter 3, that those who are truly saved are the ones who are believing in the Son of God for eternal life. But those who are truly believing in the Son of God do so because they have been born of God, and they've been radically transformed on the inside, and there's evidence that will show up from that transformation or due to God working in them. They will be doing the truth. Their lives will be consistent with that profession. We want to make sure that we don't make people, uh, inoculate people to the gospel by affirming them in their continued rebellion, but because they say they believe in Jesus. Or, or affirming them uh, just because they claim to be Christian or they, they intellectually grasp and understand and can maybe uh, articulate the truths of the gospel. The question is, have they been transformed? Are they a new creation? Are they walking in newness of life? Do you see any evidence of that? And scripture tells us what? To search ourselves, to test ourselves, examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And many times we have these reminders that of the wonderful truths of salvation for those who believe. And we're saying, well, I'm someone who believes. And then the reminder that if you, these things are true for you, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Those whom God saves, he doesn't keep them in their sin and just justify them. He justifies them and begins to change them. One, one uh, thing that I, I remember hearing that I thought was a good reminder of how God's love works. First of all, God's love is not like our love. It is not reactive to something desirable uh, in the object of, the lo- of, of his love. It's not reactive. See, we, we, we love someone or something because we see something desirable or beautiful or, or whatever, and we react to that with love. God's love is transformative. His love is transformative. So when he sets his love on the sinner, it's not because there's something great in the sinner that's like, oh, I really like you. You're special. No, while we're still sinners, right? God loved us in what way? He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to die in our place for our sins, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him. His love is transformative, is sacrificial, but then he changes us. He doesn't leave us where we are. Come as you are, yes. Come to Jesus as you are with your sin. Let that light shine on you and expose you for what you are, a wretched sinner in need of mercy. But then God doesn't keep you there. He doesn't keep us as we are. He begins to change us. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that saves. This is what we need to be reminded of. We need to walk in it, and we need to proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for just the clarity you've given us that we might, we might not be confused concerning the, the way of salvation that you have opened up through Jesus Christ, your Son, to all who believe. Thank you for giving us instruction that we might understand what it tr- truly means to believe in your son savingly. And we thank you for reminding us that it is not anything in us that has contributed to our salvation or that can 
but it is by your grace alone. Help us to be anchored in that gospel truth that you are a gracious God who has graciously determined to save sinners, to make a new people for yourself who will enter your kingdom. And you chose, Father, sovereignly to to set your love on us, on all who would be reconciled to you through the death of your son, that we might have eternal life. And you've done this apart from our doing, apart from our works, our so-called good deeds, our so-called expressions of religious devotion. You came down, you intervened, and you graciously changed us. You gave us life. You caused us to be born from above. That, and you've granted us the very repentance and faith that we're called to have and to exercise. You've changed our nature so that we willingly walk in faith and repentance and obedience to your word. You've changed us, Father. And yet, due to our indwelling sin, we know that we are yet to be perfected, but you have broken sin's power that we might put it off, that we might say no to it. And more and more, by the power of your spirit who you've supplied us, you are conforming us to the likeness of your son. And in that we rejoice, in that we, we have hope of, a, of glory, of our eternal future, in him and and father we pray that that rejoicing in him might be evident to all and that we might share this good news and that we might be faithful to walk in your ways as a living breathing witness of your gracious powerful loving saving work and it's in jesus name we pray amen